0: Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage, and let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God.
1: Thank you so much, Todd, for taking over. I'm sorry I was late today. Uh, no excuses, but um, one extra prayer request. You can pray for Tyler and Sheila, who returned from camp yesterday sick. So um, I've been nursing sick wife and child this morning, and I just lost track of time. And I looked up, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got to go. So I raced over here as fast as I could, so I apologize for being late. But um, anyway, they had a great week at camp but came back Um she was actually not doing good while she was at camp, but then Tyler apparently has come down with something too. So she had a fever and she's not feeling good at all, so. um Okay, uh, when we were last together, we were uh, going through, we've been going through the uh, study of pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and we've been going through the major positions on the concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We got through what we classified as the reformed position, which I said pretty much is in line uh, for, to a large degree with what the church had always believed about the concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit up to the introduction of Pentecostal theology in early 1900. And so now we we're, we're been going through the Pentecostal position on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we've gotten to this question of, is speaking in tongues evidence of spirit baptism? Um, so there's a quote from a guy named Larry Hurtado, which I think gets to the essence of the problem that exists for Pentecostalism. On this point, and that question of what he says is the question of what constitutes the initial evidence of a person having received the baptism in the Spirit. Simply is not raised in the New Testament. Um, he's a professor of New Testament, and he. Um, is also somebody who's an expert on the ancient church. He works for the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And he just says, quite simply, the New Testament doesn't seem to care about trying to prove that you have the Holy Spirit through some sort of external evidence. There's not just some some uh, specific statement of, here's how you'll know somebody has received the Holy Spirit. So um, this question is something that Pentecostals are gonna have to address. And um, we've got some, some uh, scripture that indicates Quite to the contrary And the first is 1 Corinthians 12 30-31 Paul is talking here to the Corinthian church which was having some errors That they were dealing with and one of them Was they were having Um Problems within their meetings of not having order and things getting a little bit chaotic. And uh, if you understood the background on the church in Corinth, it was a very pagan society and they were involved in lots of pagan um, rituals that included ec- ecstatic utterances as would be called, referred to kind of just in a broad sense. And this is this seems, uh, looking back on studying what was going on in Corinth and what Paul writes and what other church fathers refer to as happening there in Corinth, like Clement, who became Clement of Rome, he has a letter to the Corinthians that followed Paul's death. And we have that letter. And he was still trying to get the Corinthian church a little bit in line. It seems that these utterances and these other types of ecstatic experiences were seeping their way into the common worship experience in the church in Corinth. So Paul writes, do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts and I will show you an even better way. The word all that I put in italics is my emphasis. But he's asking this question, and it's almost, uh, I don't know how you read it, but I think most people read this as rhetorical, right? But when he says, do all heal, what's he implying there? No, they don't. Of course they don't. Do all have gifts of healing? Well, no. Do all have gifts of tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. So there's this implication that it's quite the opposite that all would have the ability to speak in tongues. And then in First Corinthians 14, 5, he says, I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. Again, the, the emphasis on the word wish is my emphasis there to italicize. I just wanted to point that word out to you. He's saying um, in, in almost a rhetorical sense, um, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but what does that imply then? That not everyone, that not everyone does exactly, and so um, the doctrine of the or, sorry the doctrine of speaking in tongues as evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit is not stated anywhere in Scripture, and yet we have these two passages, which I think very clearly imply that. Not everybody would have the gift of tongues, and yet he is speaking to people that if you read the entirety of Corinthians, both First and Second Corinthians, there's no doubt that these are people who are Christians, and he speaks to them of their being spirit-filled in other places. So, here they have the Holy Spirit, and yet he's implying that they don't all speak in tongues. Did you have a, a question? No, a question. Um,
2: what's the definition of prophesying? Because I've heard two different
1: interpretations. Yeah, and that's a disputed topic. We're going to get into the gifts and what they mean in a little bit later in this study because there is some, some dispute about that, and this gets into the debate over what's known as cessationism. So cessationism is the belief that the miraculous gifts ceased at the end of the apostolic age. And so one of the apostolic gifts that would have ceased would be a... Version of prophecy that would be akin to the book of Revelation, where you can actually see the future, something like Ezekiel or Daniel may have done. But there's a different way that you can interpret the word prophecy to mean what this says, to edify, to build up. So in in a biblical sense, what I'm doing right now could be called prophesying in that I am speaking to the body in an in a, uh, attempt to build up and edify the body. So if you, if you think that prophecy means that, well, you have a different situ- situation. And of course, could it mean one in one place and another in another place? Yes, it could, in the same way that um, you have some Pentecostals, which we haven't gotten into the Pentecostal position yet, we're about to do that, but some Pentecostals will say that you have two types of tongues. You have types of you have a gift of tongues that's a literal foreign language, a known language like for us French or Russian, uh, and you have a private prayer language that is designed only for the believer, and that both of those are what is meant by tongues in different in different places in Scripture. So I know that didn't answer your question of what does it mean, but the reason I'm not answering is because there isn't. A what it means answer. I'm going to have to go through why you might think it's this one versus this one. Right. Does that make sense? To be To be fair. Okay. So this doctrine of speaking in tongues as evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what is known as an inferential theology. An inferential theology it is inferred through looking at lots of scriptures and coming to a conclusion. Now, there are other things that are inferential that we don't dispute, and I gave an example of one previously in our study. So I don't want to imply, and I'll I'll come to that in a second, but I just want to make sure you understand. I'm not implying that inferential theology is bad in itself, because, for instance, the doctrine of the Trinity is an inferential theology. It doesn't say anywhere, God is Trinity. We infer that God is trinitarian because we have very clear statements in scripture that if we take them all as true it must we have to arrive at that conclusion there is only one god and yet we see god presented as three persons god the father god the son and god the holy spirit and we can you know we've done that deep dive already in this class so if one is true god is there's only one god and the second Uh, in the statement is true, in the syllogism is true, that there are three persons presented as God, it must mean there's only one God, and he presents in three persons. He's Trinitarian. That's an inferred theology. So it's it's not a negative that something is inferential. I'm just making the case that what the Reformed position would say is, look, there isn't a clear place in Scripture it says that's what happens. Everybody with me on that? Okay, any questions? So here's the summary of the Reformed position. Baptism of the Holy Spirit initiates all Christians into the faith. There is no distinction between Luke theology and Pauline theology. If you missed our discussion on that, I went through this um, background on the fact that Pentecostals view Luke and he's the author of Acts. They view his theology as distinct from Paul's theology around the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They consider them separate concepts are separate. Uh, they don't say that, they don't think in any way they disagree, of course they believe in the continuity of Scripture, but they would say that Luke has a totally different focus and a totally different emphasis that is charismatic and Paul's is soteriological. And so you can't infer things from Paul. You can't put Paul on to Luke is what they would say. We discussed that at length. Um, baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a secondary work because it initiates the Christian into the faith. And baptism in the Holy Spirit is not evidenced by speaking in tongues. And baptism in the Holy Spirit is different than being filled with the Holy Spirit or bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Because you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that's what initiates you into the faith. And then you start to bear the fruit of the Spirit subsequent to you being a Christian as you are obedient to Christ, as you pursue the Word, and things of that nature. Okay, any questions about this?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit initiates.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is the inference there that the majority of us have not been initiated?
1: No, not at all. The, what all this means is that being a Christian, if you are a Christian, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Contrasted with the Pentecostal, we would say you become a Christian, and, and again, we're about to get into this, so you're going to see this very clearly. But you become a Christian... Point one, chronologically, step one, you become a Christian. Step two, at some subsequent place, after asking, you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an empowering to do the work of a Christian in some new supernatural way. Does that make sense? And so they, and as we're about to see, they think that what happens in the book of Acts, so take Acts chapter 2 as an example, where you have the believers who are already believers. They're in the upper room, so they're already Christians in the Pentecostal's mind. Okay? And so time is passing from the point that they become a Christian, and then they're praying, and the Holy Spirit comes, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, second point in the chronology. They're speaking in tongues, they have some new supernatural power, and then they go forth and do the work of the gospel. Does that make sense? What the Reformed position says is, yes, that's true, but there was a unique historical element going on there. God was doing something for the first time. He was initiating a new way things were going to work to fulfill the prophecies like Joel chapter 2, and from that point forward, that's not normative. You just when you when you become a Christian, you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Thank you.
2: Well, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. is there mechanisms that we can do uh, to bring that about, or does sometimes that happen? Um, unexpectedly.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So we're going to talk about that at length too. Yes, because (laughs) and and the reason we're going to get into that is that when we get into um, Wesleyan theology and when we get into what would have been the ancient church's approach to the Holy Spirit, which those two things have a lot in common, we're going to see that there is an emphasis on the on the things that they believe you could do to be more filled and more subjected or submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit and operate more in conjunction with the power of the Holy Spirit rather than your flesh. So there's a whole theology around that notion of being filled and being empowered and and, and, and in connection to what can we do as humans, if anything, can we do anything? to be more filled or to be more empowered. Okay?
2: Yeah, I mean because that is a big issue.
1: It is. Absolutely. I mean,
2: I mean if it could just happen just like that, Correct. Be more the hard like Yes.
1: It. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's the reform position. Because so now we're gonna move on to the to the Pentecostal position. What does the Pentecostal say? Now um, I want to just uh, quote a guy who's named Stanley Horton, who is a very prominent, or I think he's passed away now, but he was a very, very prominent um, Pentecostal theologian. He was uh, one of the primary uh, uh, mouthpieces of the Assemblies of God churches, and when you read his stuff, you read a lot of what is represented in the quotes I'm about to share with you. And I'm not sharing this to to disparage this, but to show you how seriously they take it. It says, Pentecostals have always understood spirit baptism as the coming of God's Spirit into the believer's life in a very focused way. Please do not close your mind when I speak of experience. Spirit baptism is, is an observable and intensely personal experience, not just a doctrine. This is very important to really appreciate the Pentecostal position is the emphasis that they put on the experience of the believer. And when you, you know, I, I do sales training in my real work, in my job, and one of the things you always say in sales is, uh, "Facts tell, but stories sell. Facts tell, stories sell." Well, the Pentecostals know this, mm-hmm. and they tell stories and stories and stories if you read books defending pentecostal theology it'll start with let me tell you what happened to me let me tell you what happened to my wife let me tell you what happened to my grandmother let me tell you what happened to my father let me tell you what happened to my neighbor and it's just all these stories of very unique experiences that made it clear to the person this is how God works and some of us who come from maybe a more rational Um, side of the, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way, like they're irrational. I'm saying we come from a more enlightenment-influenced tradition, and we think of things very logically. We want to immediately go, uh, that's just a bunch of bunk, but I'm just telling you, we're wiping off like a huge category of people. if, If we really want to understand them and appreciate them and love them as our brothers and sisters in Christ, we must appreciate the fact that they take this very seriously, these personal experiences.
2: Yeah, we
1: well, know. <laughs> okay, so I thought the best way to expose you to the Pentecostal doctrine is to quote the Pentecostal doctrine straight up. Yes. So, with what you just said about you know the the fact that they tell stories about their experiences, mm-hmm. I mean that is a,
0: in terms of like evangelization.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I know
0: that I know that evangelization um, is also thought of that way. Mm-hmm. You Say. Facts tell, stories
1: sell. Mm -hmm. That is how a lot of evangelization happens as well. No question. So what is the difference? Like, what would you say the difference is between, I mean, even Jesus Mm -hmm. told a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. So what is the difference between what you're saying and what Jesus did? Or somebody who tells about how they became a Christian how they were saved? -hmm. Great question. So let me just take those two things and unpack it into two categories because I'm going to separate out what Jesus did with his storytelling from what we're talking about here and what you're saying with evangelization. So I completely agree with you that one of the most effective things I can do is tell my personal testimony of what Christ has done in my life. And I encourage us all to do that. And I'm not discounting that in any way. What would distinguish something like that from what I'm pointing out here, and again, I want to be super respectful of Pentecostals. I'm not trying to disparage them by saying they use stories. I'm saying that this will seem foreign to us if we're from a more rational approach to Scripture because they, we would tell a story in order to witness, but if we were to have some sort of theological dispute, our own experiences would rarely play a role in that debate. Does that make sense? Like you would say, no, 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 but you don't understand. In Romans it says this, and then in Colossians it says this, and I'd say, oh yeah, but have you read 1 John over here? That's the way we would go about it. But they would say, I understand what it says in Romans, but let me tell you what happened to my grandmother, and then my grandfather, and then my mom, and then my aunt. And they would. Maybe not, I think there are many that would, maybe some of them would would slink back just a hair from putting it on par with Scripture, but practically speaking, when they're giving you the response, it's as if they're putting those experiences on par with Scripture. Does that make sense? That's the difference. Now, to what Christ did, Christ didn't tell stories, I mean, some of the stories he told were obviously factual things, but in terms of his parables, he was delivering eternal truths through the art of story, which, you know, is a very powerful way to do it, as we all know, right? When we watch movies or whatever, we understand that those things stick with us. So uh, I would say that's a little bit of a, a unique use of storytelling, was to deliver an eternal truth like that.
2: Yeah, the, storytelling is a, the storytelling is a
1: metaphor
2: mm-hmm. for Christ using it
1: to show something. In many cases, that's correct. Mm-hmm. That's
2: what the other thing you're talking about, um, scientists call it taking anecdotes as hard data. Mm-hmm. User cases and anecdotes can support that
1: mm-hmm.
2: you can't replace them yeah. in science. Obviously, theology is not science, but the same idea applies. You can't use it as
1: your primary. Well, science today has become theology, so let's just <laughs> let's not, let's not have any illusions about that. what Wayne talked about today in the sermon. He talked about that human experience right now in culture is trumping biblical... For sure. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Well, if you go back, you know, um, I guess it was right around 98, 99. There was this whole movement called the Emerging Church Movement. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a kind of a heretical side called the Emergent Church Movement. That People could get the two very easily confused (laughs) because the names sound almost identical. But the emerging church movement was focused on this idea that to the generation that was coming up at that time, that was completely had grown up in a postmodernist context, that experience does trump everything. And what would happen would be uh, in the previous generations, you would study something, decide it was true, and then pursue that in experience. But the flip side is now true. You experience something that feels true, so then that's what you pursue to support intellectually. So, like, this is a little off the rails, but um, what they were trying to do is say, like, why is it that people, like, kids today will embrace Buddhism, but they reject Christianity. And they were saying, because they walk into a Buddhist temple, it feels sacred. Therefore, they pursue it. Versus they come to a church, like ours, and it feels a little bit like a shopping mall, so doesn't feel very sacred. So they're like, "Oh, this can't be sacred," and it's an experience that I experience. This is true or false, therefore I pursue it or not. And the whole point was they were trying to bring back things that felt sacred. I'm just, I'm just uh, expressing that this is definitely a factor in modern Christianity. It's been a factor for the last 20 years of this this postmodern thing that we have, where people experience something and that's why it's true. Having said that, the Pentecostals have been doing that for a hundred years.
0: And one of the things that I think that ends up happening when you put experience above Bible, besides being wrong, is that you end up justifying
1: lies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can, for sure. You can, not that you do, but you can. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, we have to always be careful, too, like, of what... um, We, statements we make that are what would be called a priori statements, which are things where we just say it is true, and there's all these presuppositions built into the statement we're making. We don't really understand that we've got all these presuppositions built in. Okay. Um, All right, so the thing that's interesting about Horton, though, is he, um, (laughs) he's a very educated guy. I get it. I'm trying to ignore it. He's got his Master's in Divinity from Gordon Conwell, which is one of the preeminent Reformed theological schools in the world. And then he has his Master's in Sacred Theology from Harvard. And then he has his Ph.D. from Central Baptist Theological Seminary, which is a, without a doubt, not Pentecostal seminary. So here's a guy who went to a Reformed he got his masters, his MDiv at a reform school, he got a sacred theological degree from Harvard, which is liberal, and then he goes to a very conservative Baptist seminary for his PhD, and yet, he has no problem telling you that his experiences are as important as anything you're gonna tell him from scripture. Okay, so, uh, we can't just discount them as all. They're just they're just these ex- like kind of mindless seeking after experiences. They just want to have this feeling. That's definitely not the theologians that are in that camp. We have to take them seriously. Now, um, I said that I thought the best way to present you the Pentecostal position was just to quote it. And the premier Pentecostal denomination in the world is the Assemblies of God, and so um, they were the first people to codify. Um, the, the theology into something we could read and evaluate and they got together, the Assemblies of God was born in the spring of 1914 and in the uh, 1916, October 2nd through 7th they had a council that got together for the first time and they put together this thing called the Statement of Fundamental Truths and so it's numbered you know, like kind of like the Westminster Catechism is numbered or whatever, it's numbered and so when you get to number 5 and 6, you get to their beliefs on the Holy Spirit so, number five says the promise of the Father. All believers are entitled to and should ardently expect and earnestly seek. I'm pause on that word. The promise of the Father. The baptism in the Holy Ghost and fire according to the command of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the normal experience of all in the early Christian church. With it comes the endowment of power for life and service. The bestowment of the gifts and their uses in the work of the ministry. And then they have these quotes, these uh, scriptural quotations that support the statement. So I thought we'd just look at those really quickly. But any questions about the statement itself? It's pretty plainly stated. Mm hmm. Could,
2: could this have grown out of um, the lack of the apathy in the church?
1: Well, I will tell you that if you look at the history of Pentecostalism, the people who got involved in it early on definitely felt an excitement that they were a part of something that God was doing that was new and fresh. They felt like it was... You know, like another great awakening, like the Wesleyan revival of the 1700s. They felt like God is moving in a fresh way, and we're jumping in that stream, and we're a part of it. And they were, there was definitely, they were getting caught up in the excitement and the enthusiasm of that happening. And you have people coming from all sorts of denominations that were getting into this wave and decided to leave their denominations, whether they were Baptist or Episcopalian or whatever, and, and become part of the Assemblies of God. But this all takes place very shortly after Charles Parham and all the events at Azusa Street and stuff that we discussed. It's only like I think uh, eight years later, nine years later. So um, Luke twenty four forty nine, and look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you're empowered from on high. Uh, we've studied these scriptures before. Then Luke and then Acts one four and eight, um, he commanded us. Or commanded them. He command while he was with them. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then, um, what's interesting is they quote the entire First Corinthians chapter twelve, uh, all verses one through thirty-one. Um, I think it's interesting that they quote this as a support for that statement when it gets into this whole section of a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by the Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gift of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. I think it's very interesting that they quote this as support of their statement, but this is the support. I think they would argue, have argued that this is the support for the notion that the Holy Spirit is what empowers uh, the body for the work. And I'm not going to read through the whole thing. We've done that before, but uh, that's 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 31. Any questions about 1 Corinthians 12? Since we're just skipping over it, I don't want anybody to feel like they got robbed. Okay. Um, then the next statement they made is number 6 The full confirmation of the baptism in the Holy Ghost it says the full consummation of the baptism of believers in the Holy Ghost and fire Is indicated by the initial sign of speaking in tongues As the Spirit of God gives utterance Acts 2.4 This wonderful experience is distinct from And subsequent to The experience of the new birth So here's where we get this idea of it being a secondary work of grace As it's called a second thing chronologically, Acts 10, 46, 11, 14 through 16, and 15, 8 through 9. So just to quickly review those, Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak different tongues as the Spirit enabled them, Acts 2, 4. This is when Pentecost actually happens, or the, the initiation of Pentecost, um, or you know what we refer to as Pentecost now. Acts 10:44 through 46. This is Peter recalling what happened when he goes and sees um, Cornelius. It says, "While well, Peter was still speaking these words." I'm sorry, this is Luke saying what happened when Peter went to see Cornelius. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. And then... Acts chapter 11 is Peter recalling what had happened to the other apostles. He will speak a message to you by which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down to them just as on us at the beginning. I remember the words of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then later at the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, and God who knows the heart bore bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So, they see when they read these passages in Acts, very clear pattern. Person gets saved, some time passes, they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. How can we recognize that they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Oh, well they're speaking in tongues. That's the, That tells us this what happened.
2: Beyond Acts 10, mm-hmm. which is Mm-hmm. are there any other
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, examples extra biblical
1: no there's five in Acts where this happens where yes yeah,
2: are there any others extra biblical that this lasted for third you know like twenty thirty years on the first part of the church no
1: N-Acts? no and that's why I'm waiting to get to the ancient church's ideas on the Holy Spirit at the very end because we're going to see what happened in the first century
2: because the idea that it was contained with it yeah. You know, it's important to know it. And you would think that somebody like a Herodotus or somebody would go, all of a sudden, you we know, had all these people speaking languages all over the place, you
1: know? Yeah. So it's not clear. I mean, there was definitely instances of speaking in tongues, but the notion that the Holy Spirit baptism was secondary and the notion that it was evidenced by speaking in tongues, that everybody, that's what happened, was totally uh, absent in ancient literature. Now,
2: in the other five examples, mm-hmm. like the one in 10, mm-hmm. Does it occur because they then became Christians?
1: Well, that's the disputed part. So we've we've covered we covered the five from a reform perspective, and we're going to come back to them now.
2: I'm making the distinction between you know we had the the original one, mm-hmm. you know the Holy Spirit came when he did because that's when Jesus mm-hmm. finally sent him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But the others, it all seems to occur right after they were introduced to the gospel or believed it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, Acts chapter eight is probably the most problematic for the non-Pentecostal. And we had to deal with that from a reform perspective, but we'll, we'll talk about those. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe. Catch up on past episodes and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.